0: You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey, formerly Bulletproof, Bulletproof Radio. A state of high performance. You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. Today is going to be a different kind of show because we're going to talk about love. What is real love? How do you see it? How do you think about not just being on the treadmill of earning more, achieving more, Gaining more attention and how do you know the resolutions or promises that you made to yourself that maybe you didn't need to make because it wasn't even you that made them and how do you get more freedom out of all of this and our guest today is uniquely qualified for this and a quick shout out to Jay Shetty uh, for recommending um, our guest I uh, thank you Jay if you're listening. He's a Canadian-born rapper, a spoken word artist, a poet, and now an international best-selling author who talks about love. And he goes by Humble the Poet. Humble, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So a decade ago, you went to coffee shops and you started doing spoken word poetry. And now here you are. What the heck happened?
1: Um, the organic journey of honoring
0: the artist that lives within. Will you indulge me for a second and imagine who you would be if you actually had more energy, if your brain fired faster and you could measure it and you had a calmer nervous system that worked better. That's what this show, that's what my work is all about. You can be that person with a few fixes that really work. In my brand new book, Smarter Not Harder, I will teach you about the little things that make the biggest difference in your life so you can be that person. There's a new anti-nutrient that you haven't heard about yet that is weakening everything you do from your workouts to your meditations. You can remove it from your diet and you'll notice a shift quickly. Learn how to get the right amount of exercise for you in the very least amount of time and it's way less than you think. Smarter, Not Harder is about simplicity and efficiency so you have more time to work on the things that matter to you. You can use the time to work on yourself or to help other people, but it's time that's yours that you're not using effectively right now. If you want to get your energy back like I did, you want to manage the stress so you can handle anything, maybe even drop the weight, check out Smarter, Not Harder wherever you buy books. This is stuff you haven't seen anywhere else. Smarter, Not Harder. Thank you for your support and you started doing spoken word poetry and now here you are what the heck happened um the organic
1: journey of honoring the artist that lives within you know i was an elementary school teacher i was working with uh third graders and it was the first time as an adult i had free time after work and you know what, what the young guys do after after work? they they go with their friends and try to meet girls. And you know so it was a, it was a flip between attending yoga classes and uh, going to these like spoken word poetry things. and I, and I grew up in a world of hip hop and, and rap and putting words together. So I was doing that whole I was doing that quietly for years. and uh, we started attending these these poetry slams and it was like the greatest icebreakers ever. You go up there and perform one poem. And then everyone comes up to you after telling you how much they liked it. And the ice has been broken and the conversations can be had. And um, eventually started recording the performances and putting them up on YouTube and and gained traction. And people started coming to see me. And that started the journey of being an artist. And then eventually I got a little bit deeper into music. And then I met some nefarious characters in the music industry who convinced me that I had a lot of talent and talent. Promise. So I quit my job as a teacher to pursue that. And um, obviously, that didn't work out because all their promises weren't kept. And the next thing I knew, I was unemployed in a boatload of debt, trying to figure out how artists actually made money. And um, (laughs) also, I I was making music, but I didn't know how to make the music by myself. I had people helping me record the music, shoot the videos, do all of that. Um, So then I got to a point where I didn't have access to these people anymore, I didn't have resources anymore, and uh, after speaking to a friend, they encouraged me to focus on what I can do by myself and not depend on anybody, and at that point, it was just a written word, so I used to write paragraphs upon paragraphs every single day um, on Facebook and treat it like a blog, and um, that connected with my audience even more than the music, because it was a lot easier for them to, to soak it in. And they told me that I should write a book. I'm like, I don't know how to write a book. And they sent me links to Amazon, Create Space, KDP, independent publishing. They sent me tutorials on Adobe InDesign. They sent me all the stuff. They sent me links to Kickstarter and Indiegogo to to find money to, to make it happen. And, um, I independently published and fundraised my first book on Learn. And that was. The, the, the contents of that book was just the idea that we have to let go of ideas more than gain new ideas to feel better about life. And that's what I was going through because I was I was very green in the world of entertainment and in the world of entrepreneurship and in the world of dream chasing because um, I had spent my entire life in school as a student and then as a teacher. And that's a very protected environment. And uh, the first book did very well independently and eventually it got picked up by um, one of the biggest bookstores in Canada, Indigo. They they licensed it out and it became a bestseller in Canada. And at that point, I started getting a lot of attention from the States and then republished it again in 2019 with HarperCollins. And it did extremely well with that. And I've since released another book, um, Things No One Else Can Teach Us. And now I have my third book coming out at the end of the year, uh, How to Be Loved.
0: We're definitely going to talk about how to be loved, but I'm still stuck on this idea that you're a young guy, and this is advice for everyone listening, because we got a lot of a lot of young people figuring out how to have more energy, more power in the world. And you said it was yoga classes or spoken word poetry was your pickup artist gig, right?
1: Well, yeah, and it was even less about pickup artists. I think it was a lot more about being in just being in the being in the room. Like, you know, yeah. I think you know, when you're in school, especially university, like, you know, it's it's almost 50 50 and you're around women, you know, and then when you start working your job, your world instantly shrinks. And I think that was something that me and my friends figured out very quickly. And it was like, well, how do we expand our world to to meet women? And then one of my friends was like, yo, yoga, like everybody's doing this thing called yoga. We should get in on that. And you know, I have the tightest hamstrings in the world and can't touch my toes since I was a child. And going to these yoga classes, you know, we're going for all the wrong reasons. But then, when it came to these these spoken word poetry slams, some of them were super small in coffee shops, others were on stages. We wow. had to sign up beforehand. Um, and again, it was it was also you know there was the creative the, the the creative spirit in me that had never been honored before. You know, a lot of children, the immigrants are encouraged to focus on what's safe and secure. So this wasn't something I ever thought about seriously. So I, I and the immediate gratification that
0: came from it was the attention I got from women. They're both about being vulnerable, yoga, and standing up in front of a crowd and doing something. In in the US, but maybe not in Canada, uh, the number one fear that people have is actually public speaking. So they'll swim with sharks before they'll stand on stage. And it's one thing to stand on stage; it's another thing to dance uh, or to perform on stage, right? That that's another level of it. And in yoga, you're showing up, and you're automatically comparing yourself to everyone else in the room, uh, falling on your face as I have many times in crow pose in front of attractive women in tight yoga pants, right? Uh, and so, either way, you're risking, you know, public humiliation, uh, but it it also shows courage and vulnerability. But okay, so I get all that. But then you're you've got a Mister Rogers vibe, but with a ZZ Top beard going on, um, because you know the third grade teaching thing and the kind and, and the loveness. Are you like the next generation Beat poet, Mister Rogers? Is there some of that in there? Because because some of what you talk about with love has that vibe of kindness in it, and you know the language of kids. Um, I think I'm getting
1: there. I think back <laughs> then, you know, the last thing I would have viewed vulnerability was as i wouldn't have viewed it as a strength it wasn't until many many years later that i actually realized that vulnerability was a strength um i was again just the way i was raised the neighborhood i was raised in you know you viewed all that as a weakness so you know the last thing you wanted to do was go to yoga class and and fall on your face even though you're absolutely correct um there's a lot of value in trying, a lot of value in failing, a lot of value in putting yourself out there, and a lot of growth that comes from being uncomfortable. Um, back then, these aren't things that I knew. You know, back then, it was like, when I'm performing, it's got to be perfect. When I'm doing yoga, I'm only going to do the moves that I know how to do. And if people aren't watching, then I'm just going to stand up straight and, and, and fix it. Um, and it wasn't until much, much, much later that I started to realize that this this art isn't about presenting anything. It's about exploring and, um, that took me, that took me quite a while. So, and, and, and my experiences, you know, as, as an elementary school teacher, I, I taught in the same neighborhood that I, that I had once lived in. So I had a lot in common with the kids, the, mm. you know, the, it was the second largest elementary school in Toronto. Um, and I taught for about six years and I never had a white student. The entire school was new immigrants from various parts of India, Pakistan, Somalia, Jamaica, um, you know the Middle East, uh, Assyrians, uh, or, or Iranians, um, and then a few people from South America, um, and that, and, and the only Anglo Christian names, the only Christophers I've ever had were kids from Jamaica, and that, that, that world. I think I added a lot of value, um, kind of symbolically, and I think that's kind of how I got the job more than my my credentials and my experience at that point. But I think it, it definitely helped me sit in front of a, a room full of people staring at you intently and performing, mm. um, and it taught me a lot about taking heavy ideas and making them light. Um, mm. You know, can you can you explain it to an eight year old? Then you can explain it to anyone, or you, you can speak to everybody's inner inner child. So there definitely wasn't a Mister Rogers vibe, or you know, as much or, or as top vibe as much as there was a. Uh, um, me kind of bringing in um me me kind of bringing in the neighborhood into the classroom and got it. and 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 the kids and and the neighborhood was you know it was a it was a, a new immigrant a neighborhood for 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 new immigrants and 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 uh, a lot of marginalized individuals and uh you know the challenges that come with that so i you know originally came in kind of bringing all, all the, the worst qualities of people from that neighborhood. And it was through teaching that I started to understand m- the importance of my role. There aren't a lot of males in elementary school uh, as teachers. Um, and then I started, foc- I started getting trained in programs, um, being enlightened to the fact that I will most likely be the only, uh, the only consistent male role model for a lot of these students um, for that year. So then it it, it turned into things like, okay, so even though you're not scared of spiders, you're going to tell the kids you're scared of spiders. So we need to teach the kids that it's okay for men to be scared. And these were things that I didn't even know. So I'm like, I'm not scared of spiders. I don't want to come off as a wimp. And um, as I said, like this journey of understanding the strength and vulnerability uh, was slowly revealed to me. Um, And it was not something that came natural, especially in the classroom. Um, But it did help me realize how much of a suck it up culture i grew up in where uh i i heavily self-regulated and uh, i only looked to my family for emergency cases only you know if i was in a lot of trouble if i needed money um you know like if shit hit the fan go to your family and they they were always there for you but the little things i needed help with my homework i had a crush on a girl wanted advice this, this is, you figure it out yourself. Don't tell anybody anything. Um, so I think I overly corrected and self-regulated, which um, actually isolates you from people because, you know, our interconnectivity is, is so important. Mm-hmm.
0: Your your new book on how to be love with a parentheses on the Ds, so how to be loved, I mean, your subtitle is Going Easier on Yourself, Embracing Imperfection. Well, let me ask you this. Okay, you're a teacher, you're the only male role model for these guys. How do you go about teaching boys to be men in the modern school system where there's a lot of political correctness and control on what you can do and recognizing that you know the model of masculinity that that you and I both learned which is, you know, unless you're actually having a seizure or bleeding out, you're not going to say anything. <laughs> right? So, how do you go about Showing up, but still representing masculine qualities, because there are such things as masculine qualities. How would you do that as a teacher, and what would you do different now than you did back then? Um,
1: so what you what you what you realize very very quickly is they don't they don't listen to what you say. They they, they look at what you do. Yes. Yeah. Um, and again, like I, you know, I have, I have a bunch of tattoos, I have neck tattoos, I have tattoos on my hands and I had all of these as a teacher as well. So I think, you know, the, I, I think they, they actually found comfort. I think they found comfort in the fact that I look like them because there was a heavy South Asian population in the school. And I think they also found comfort in the fact that I was very urban, just like them. And, uh, right. you know, the wording I used and everything like that, they, they found that. And then what I started to realize was this was not the healthiest because i also wasn't the healthiest representation of, of of what it meant to be a man and masculinity and and the farthest i ever went as a teacher in terms of you know how i projected it, it was like yeah you know I, I love kids and you know it's a cute job and it's fun but you know it's it's a stepping stone to be a principal cuz you know i got to be a boss i can't be mm. you know an elementary school teacher reading children's books to kids and 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 speaking in a high voice like good morning boys and girls like and i never <laughs> and, I, and i never did that and that was the big thing. Where if I ever did that to the kids, even at eight years old, they knew I was being sarcastic. They knew I was making fun of this typical teacher trope. Um, and, and the thing too was like I was really young. I was 21, 22 Some of them had parents you know that went to school with me, you know so some of them you know some of the, the people I went to school with had had children really young, and some of them knew who I was just based off of affiliation, neighborhoods, you know, communities, no communities. Uh, I think one of the biggest lessons I learned quickly, and and for a lot of for a lot of young men, they're they're informed. Their masculinity is not just informed by the men in their life, but also by the responses they receive from the women in their life. And I think one of the biggest challenges that both young men and women um, struggle to decipher is the difference between aggression and assertiveness. You know, I think to mm-hmm. be an effective male, you have to be assertive. And that often, you know, when we think simplistically, especially when we're younger and we can we can only think simplistically is we view that as aggression. And um, that was a really big challenge for me to start to decipher with the kids, which was like, you know, being tough isn't what makes you a man, but, you know, taking risks, moving forward, speaking your mind, uh, you know, uh, being social, eye contact, posture, all of these things matter. But it, that doesn't mean... Encroaching on somebody's boundaries—that um, doesn't mean, uh, you know, disrespecting their personal space and all of these things. And I think that was a really that was a challenge, especially from the neighborhood I grew up in. And I can, and even to this day as an adult, um, you can see the response that people have to certain levels of uh, aggression, thinking it's assertive, thinking that it's 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 taking that step and, and and putting yourself first. So I think the challenge was, as I said, a lot of the the vulnerability in the beginning had to kind of be manufactured to tell the kids like, yeah, you know, Mr. Singh is scared of spiders and Mr. Singh is scared of heights. and Yeah, Mr. Singh cries every now and then. And, and these weren't things I ever allowed myself to do back then. But I was, I was starting to understand the value of it because when I would talk, I, I was running a boys book club for reading. Um, and I would also Uh, And we would ask them questions like, well, what's a man? Who's a man? And they would name all these like rappers who who should definitely not be a role model in any capacity. And back then the prevalence of, of, of hip hop was all gangster rap and it was all, you know, drug selling rappers, which, which isn't the case as much now. But, um, so I think that helped me become a lot more aware that this, this, this pseudo alpha male, um, posture that we bring, which, can definitely serve us if we if we grew up in challenging neighborhoods to not make us um a mark or 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 a potential victim of something. Doesn't always serve us. It can it can serve as, as being intimidating to, to people in a certain way. And especially with the kids. You know, I wasn't always cognizant of the fact that I could intimidate the kids if I was upset or with the tone of my voice and stuff like that. Um, and it took a while to realize like they're just kids. They don't have their brains haven't formed the way they have. So there was a lot of modeling in that capacity. And I think the other thing that really helped was really h- focusing on being responsive versus being reactive. So the one reputation I had is I, I was never getting upset with the kids and, and getting and yelling or getting mad. And that was only because I figured out very quickly the things that would set me off. And I, nipped them in the bud, set, set the expectations clearly. Like, hey, if you don't do your homework, this is what's going to happen. So I'm not gonna get upset with you if you don't do it. You already know the exact A-B um, reaction for what was gonna happen. So, and so they, they, won't, they,
0: they don't get a participation trophy? I, I mean, what, what do you... Oh, no, <laughs> you that, that, was,
1: that was definitely a big thing as well, which was you don't get rewarded for doing what you're supposed to do. There you go. So, you know, standing st- standing in line quietly does not deserve a reward.
0: What would happen in your life if you woke up feeling rested every single morning? It turns out that changing your temperature has a lot to do with it. That's why I adjust my bed temperature when I go to sleep, and I use something called the Doc Pro System by Sleep Me. It works to lower and raise my bed temperature throughout the night, which activates more deep sleep. And it does this with water-based cooling. Even better, Sleep Me just launched a sleep tracker called Hyber AI that makes adjustments while you're sleeping in real time. When you pair your Doc Pro with a new Hyber AI, it changes your temperature based on your current sleep activity, and that's a major upgrade. So when I'm in REM sleep, it boosts temperature, and when I'm in deep sleep, it lowers temperature, and that can completely change your heart rate variability. If you really wanna wake up feeling like a boss, try the Doc Pro, because that ability to amplify the temperature based on your sleep cycle is a completely different experience. Go to sleep.me and use code ASPRI for 25% off. That's sleep.me, use code ASPRI. One of the best things you can do to improve how you feel is to get at least six and a half hours of quality sleep every night. Why? Because your body heals itself when you sleep, which reduces your risk of just about every disease and makes it easier to lose weight on top of that. So how do you get more quality sleep every night? Well, you can make sure you're getting enough magnesium. Believe it or not, about 75% of us don't have enough of it. Even worse, most magnesium supplements don't fix your deficiency or help you sleep better. That's why I recommend Magnesium Breakthrough. It's a full-spectrum supplement with seven different forms of magnesium. You just take two capsules before you go to bed and look at how much better you feel the next morning and how much better you sleep. Because you're a regular subscriber on the podcast, the team at BiOptimizers is giving you a discount. All you've got to do is go to magbreakthrough.com slash Dave, use code Dave10, and you can save up to 47%. That's com slash Dave, use code Dave10.
1: So, you know, standing st- standing in line quietly does not deserve a reward. Uh, and explaining them to them the difference even between um, a, B, uh, a B plus and an A, you know, a B plus means you did everything you were supposed to do. An A means you went above and beyond and explaining to the families as well. Like sometimes I don't give your students an opportunity to go above and beyond. So they're, they're getting a B plus, which means they're doing everything they're supposed to do. And um, you know, I, I remember that being a really big thing for these kids to figure out, which was like, you know, we deserve, you know, we, we're sitting quietly, and like you're supposed to sit quietly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's table stakes.
1: <laughs> yeah, you're supposed to. Yeah. So, and, and it was definitely, you know, and 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 I'm still technically a millennial, so I'm definitely aware of the participation trophy culture and and the entitlement that comes with that. And um, I think that I definitely, and, but in my household, that's not how it was, and it was almost. The other way, it or you know, it was like you have to. Everything has to be amazing all the time. Um, you have to be
0: a high achiever; otherwise, you let us down. So, I think I, yeah. I was finding that that happy medium. Most of the people I interview on the show, um, you know, we we get people who've who've just done great acts of healing on themselves and others. Like Gabby Bernstein uh, was just on, and and she's she's a good friend, and you know, not a PhD in something. Right. You're not a Ph.D. like this is a lessons from life, but you learned first how to teach and then how to write books. And those are the ways you distill wisdom. That's why I do it, too. I, I taught for five years. I teach in my upgrade collective um, and in the podcast, uh, because that's the only way I know how to learn is to either like really carefully structured in a book. And yours is more poetry. Uh, but still, you put a structure behind it, and you address some of the core philosophical questions, which is why I wanted to have you on the show. Plus, Jay's uh, really smart. So if he's like, Dave, you should interview Humble. he's not going to steer me wrong. So let me just ask you straight up. There's a section in your book, and it's called WTF is Love. So Ooh. what is love? Like, give me the one-sentence definition the way you've learned it. Um, I mean, probably my favorite
1: one sentence definition is the, the Naval Kant quote, which is, uh, love is what remains when all other emotions, you know, cease to exist. Um, you know, lo- love, love is the everything and the nothing. So, you know, from an Eastern philosophy standpoint, when we think of the divine, the almighty algorithm, God, um, you know, it's, it's the code in the matrix. It's everything. Um, it's the, it's the screen that life is playing itself upon, um, and as I said, you know, every, everything I do is in it's in the vein and spirit of unlearning. So it's more about taking away than adding. So it's more about how to clear pathways for love um, than acquiring love. Love isn't something you acquire; it's something you realize. It's something that you open your sails to. It's something that's always there. And we're 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 just we're doing everything that we're doing from a societal, cultural, religious, consumeristic perspective is just closing those pathways and, and putting roadblocks in the way for us to realize something that's always been there and and that's why it really is how to be love versus how to be loved you know we want to be loved and, and the secret to that is by being love and viewing love as the verb more so than this prize that we have to be worthy of uh, we have to earn um, or we have to be something you know this 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 inaccurate measurement of enoughness that we think we need to have to to be worthy of love. Um, And thinking that our flaws disqualify us from love. Knowing that every single person we love on this planet, we could write a book on their flaws and none of
0: those (laughs) flaws disqualify them from love. How would you go about teaching someone to look at someone they don't know with love?
1: So so you know, other than the section of uh, you know WTF is love, um, the second section is, is love for self. and I think mm-hmm. you know to, to if we were to measure love in terms of success and, and, and successfully realizing love, I think it would be recognizing the, the endless source of love that, that exists from within. Um, so for someone to be successful in love would be for them to be able to tap into that and now, on a day-to-day basis, focus on sharing. That overflow, and again, and, and also in the book, saying that you know, it's, it's it, I'm not here to romanticize love. As I said, you know, to practice love, to serve, all of these require practice. You know, whether it's learning attunement, whether it's learning active listening, what's learning how to be there for people. You know, love, love isn't the glue that keeps people together. It's the fuel that makes us work at it. So I think. Encouraging someone to you know to, to, to love others and, and creating that authentic, authenticity, I think the number one word would probably be service. On my end, looking at them and, and, and saying, "What can I do for you?" You know, and whether that's helping them feel seen, whether that's helping them pragmatically do something that they need to accomplish and, and, and finish from from a three D life perspective, um, whether that's just listening because um, I think so often, whether we're talking about romantic relationships, friendships, it's always the opposite. It's like, I want you in my world. You know, hey, Dave, we get along. I want you to hear my favorite songs. Uh, hey, I want my kids to take my interest. Hey, I want all of these things happening. But the truth of the matter is it's really about that loss of self. You know, it's how do I lose myself in the service of others? And um, that doesn't require, you know, a lot of a deep understanding. It just requires a lot of work. And patience, and how do you ensure someone knows you're paying attention to them when they're speaking? And then how can you go above and beyond that to let them know that not only are you walking in their shoes, but you're, you're living in their skin and you're feeling what they feel? For me, I never had it, an adequate grasp of the word empathy until maybe two years ago after a medicine journey where I realized if somebody was sharing pain with me, it was triggering, I didn't realize it was triggering my pain. I just thought it was it was an annoying feeling, and I wanted to fix it. I'm a, I'm a fixer. Um, and then what I realized was when they're sharing their pain, it's connecting with my pain, and I'm feeling my pain, and I'm only trying to fix it because I want to shut them up to stop triggering my pain. But empathy is feeling my pain, sitting with my pain, and just giving them a hug and being in pain together. And and that took me legitimately up up until the, the pandemic to actually have an authentic feeling for that, and it was you know through a medicine journey of kicking breaking down many of the walls that my reaction to life had built up. Um, so it, it, I think you know there wouldn't be a universal way to just tell a person, all right, here we go, boom, we're gonna we're gonna pull off a bunch of shades off your your your, your third eye and you're gonna see all the love and everybody. But I think the simplest word. Is going to be service because I feel like especially out here in the Western world a lot of modern spiritual practices uh, exclude service mm-hmm. um, they're really about the individual you know whether it's uh, focusing on your horoscope or your crystals or your yoga none of these involve thinking outside of yourself and focusing on other people it's really about like are you how can you be better understood how can how 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 are you what's your relationship to the world and I think that's great marketing I think you know that's why I called the book how to be loved you know <laughs> it's, it's, uh, you know it was, it was it was inspired by Matthew Hussey telling me you know if he wants to make a video called how to love yourself he would title it why he won't text back you know mm-hmm. and it's, you got you, you got to catch them where they're at and um, you know I wrote a book about how to be loved know how to be loved. Um, But I know what people want and and I have to meet them where they're at. And I think from that same standpoint, is helping people realize that the societies and the economies that we've built have always encouraged people to focus just on themselves and isolate themselves from other people. And if whatever school of learning, life, philosophy, religion, spirituality you practice doesn't include service, Beyond yourself, um, then it's worth relooking at, because that, is, 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 if anything, would be the simplest approach to to living a richer, fuller um, life, both internally and externally.
0: Doing acts of service for others puts you in a flow state. It it makes you younger. It, it shifts your brain waves into more of a loving kindness, like some of the more esoteric states that you would get from advanced meditation. I know because my 40 years is in program, that's what we do. there. Like we're measuring people's brains and showing them how to do it. Yeah. And your book is, is very intriguing because it's usually self-forgiveness that removes all of the filters that keep you from loving yourself. And it's usually around shame and guilt and trauma. So assuming people don't have electrodes to wire into their heads, like what's – What's the best way that you know of to maybe peel off a layer so you can be closer to self-love?
1: I think probably the simplest way, and I, and I do want to repeat, simple doesn't mean easy. Um, <laughs> um, I think the simplest way is to re, um, and, and, and at least from a 3D perspective, is, is, to, is to revisit your relationship with your body. Um, your body legitimately is your ride or die. Your body has legitimately been with you since day one and has done everything in its power to support you. Um, If you are injured, it makes the adjustments. Um, If you are sick, you know, even though we we might view a fever as an unpleasant experience, that's your body fighting an illness. Um, Your body has had your back, and, and I want people to think about but what comes to your mind when you look at yourself in the mirror or when you look at your body we often look at it with a critical lens you know oh i need to to, to address these love handles oh I, I wish my shoulders were bigger oh i wish i had you know a, a nicer chest oh i wish i had a flatter stomach um and that's and despite all of that your body will still have stay with you and honor you and do as much as it can. And you could legitimately chip away pieces of it and it will still try its best to work with you. Um, You know, So many issues we have are a result of our body trying its best to work around our bad habits. You know, like sitting is the new smoking and our bodies are trying to work with that. Um, You know, making adjustments to all the screen time that we have, all of this. So I feel like the, the quickest simplest way is to go look in the mirror get naked look in the mirror and list five things on your butt have people even thought about their favorite parts of their body you know list five things not things that people have validated on you what what do you like what do you enjoy and and it's tricky because we don't generally honor our body until we get hurt and then forget how you know i can turn my neck but we've all pulled a muscle on our neck and we couldn't turn it for a day or two. And then we we start to appreciate it. So I think from from the, the bare minimum is just this honoring what's there is is a great start. And saying it out loud, you know, saying it out loud, this, we, we have to get out of our heads. Our thoughts are fragmented. And um, the negative thoughts when not expressed are generally heavier than they should be. And the positive thoughts were not expressed are generally lighter than they should be. Say these out loud, you know, feel some authentic, nutritious dopamine for a change. And um, honoring yourself um, with gratitude, you know, which is what we're chasing instead of happiness and pleasure, which is what we think we're chasing, um, I think is a great first step in recognizing that you don't have to be anything more than you are. For, for, for love to be realized you legitimately don't this is a product of a society that needs to sell us shit so they have to tell you that you're missing something so you can buy more but you don't there isn't enoughness doesn't exist with a person it, it just doesn't you know I need enough gas to drive across the country I don't need to be enough of a person for love um, and, and I was going back earlier talking about a baby you meet a baby for the first time especially a baby in your family you're full with love holding the baby the baby hasn't done anything You did nothing to quote unquote, earn your love because love doesn't need to be earned. So it's it's just a matter of, you know, removing more filters that society has put on us that we're not enough. And those filters are not, we're not put there for survival. They were put there to sell us shit because if we did feel like we were enough, um, if we did feel like we were adequate, we wouldn't be the productivity machines that we were, you know, building these, these economies that we do, you know, uh, Meditation isn't good for the economy, you know, so and that and, that, <laughs> and that's why it's not encouraged. Then, you know, you don't have to pay to learn breath work. You don't have to pay to sit in a in a tub of ice. All, all the things that are good for us don't cost money. Um, so still so start there. Start there by honoring yourself uh, authentically. Um, as as Jay Shetty says, you know, don't it, it should not be uh, performative gratitude. Like s- say it. Until you feel it, or only say it if you feel it.
0: Yeah, th- thanks for pointing that out. Performative gratitude kind of makes me want to throw up in my mouth a little bit. Like yeah. I, I'm just going to be grateful so that people will think I'm good, <laughs> and you're not actually grateful. You're just saying you are. That's just not. That's just not cool. Uh, and, and, and that's the
1: importance of prayer. I, you yeah, know, and, and I have a section in the book about the importance of prayer. It's and irrespective of your religious and spiritual beliefs. Prayer is the only time where you're having an honest conversation, where you're asking for what you actually want, and and you're grateful for for what you're actually grateful for, because
0: no one else is listening. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds, and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices, You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. Prayer is the only time where you're
1: having an honest conversation where you're asking for what you actually want and and you're grateful for for what you're actually grateful for, you know, and I think because no one else is listening, you know, so that that'll reveal to yourself what your true values are. And I think that's a good place to start. The book also includes love stories and none of the love stories are love stories in the the capacity that we think. And and there's one called Lonely Dances about me, um, you know, having a little bit of an argument with a girl who's not prioritizing me in her life. And we get to, to the point where I say, you know, thinking to myself, I'm like, look, don't you ever get lonely? Like you get lonely and you're not, and you're pushing me away. And she goes, I do get lonely. I'm like, so what are you going to do when you're lonely? She goes, I dance. She goes, I connect with myself and I dance. You know, and, and, you know, that was pretty much the end of the conversation because I realized she was operating on a much higher frequency than I was. And, you know, we're lonely because not because we don't have companies, because we don't have connection. You can be lonely in a crowded room. We don't have closeness and we don't have connection. And the fast food, easy, quick, cheap, non-nutritious version of connection is self-pity. Nobody, nobody knows what I'm going through. Just me. So you're creating a connection with yourself, um, but only quickly. And and you'll see that's what you'll see on social media. Every community and group now can be framed as a victim of something. They're they're really pulling on the self-pity um, to get to you, you know. And but it's not you know, it's, there's no nutrition. It's McDonald's. It'll fill you up, but there's no nutrition in the long run. That's why you have to keep doing it, and you have to triple, quadruple down. And you know, that's literally the the foundation of, of of modern Western politics is who can who can who can frame themselves as the biggest victim. And healthy connectedness with yourself is is enjoying your company and dancing, is is discovering parts of your body and making movements and feeling. And becoming in tune with yourself at a whole level of depth that most of us don't think about. And especially doing it alone. And and just what what it releases. Just movement. Movement is so much. Movement is medicine. Um, And I remember when she said that, just thinking to myself, like, wow, she's figured it out and I need to dance more. When I have these moments of of loneliness and isolation, it's not calling up the homies and being like, Where, where are we going tonight? What's happening? And and then, you know, having a spike of company and and, and 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 faux connectedness for a moment and then and then losing out. You know, it was playing music. And yeah, you gotta close the shades and the blinds so so you don't have to be self conscious by all means. But then just dance. And and again, back to honoring that body. And it's also another great example of, you know what we see versus what other people see. You know, um, you know, different people are gonna see different things based off their nature and nurture mixture, based off the filters that they have on. And, you know, that's something that, that's, that we, we all have to learn. To some people, we're gorgeous creatures. To other people, we could be hideous. To other people, you know, it, it's endless from that capacity. And um, this is why doing these things internally uh, also helps us build more self-respect so we're less reliant on self-esteem which comes from the outside so in, in terms of needing outside validation to feel good about ourselves when we do things internally we'll need a lot less about that, less of that and again it's simple not easy just keep keep your promises to yourself do hard things voluntarily get out of your comfort zone um, and I'm and I'm hoping especially since the pandemic people understand the importance of voluntarily getting out of their comfort zone because life will do it for you. So yeah. when, when things are comfortable, practice your swing because a curveball is coming. <laughs> and um, I think the pandemic was a wonderful example of things were moving along just fine and then they stopped. And people some people were prepared, some people were not. Some people had that as an opportunity to unlock a, 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 a deeper potential in themselves and, and other people crumbled. And stuff like that's going to continue happening. That's that you know, life doesn't happen after the obstacles. Life is the obstacles, um, and addressing those ahead of time will also do wonders um, for the relationship you
0: have with yourself. We're talking about victims and victim thinking, and I'm just re-reading or re-listening to uh, David Hawkins, one of his last books called "Letting Go," and he talks about all of the upsides of being a victim. <laughs> and he's, it's, it's really interesting because he just kind of lays them out. Like, oh, you know, it can be worth money and it can make you feel really good. Sort of like what you're saying, it, it fills you up. Uh, but ultimately, you have to realize that you're making a choice to be a victim and that you don't have to make that choice. When you stop making that choice, you're in a better place. So what advice would you have for someone who's sitting, listening to this and saying, I'm a victim of whatever disease or accident or scarring process, someone who has had damage to their body uh, for them to have self-love and to drop the, I'm a victim of, I'm suffering from versus I experienced.
1: Um, I think understanding that our challenges may not have been our fault, mm-hmm. but there's still our responsibility.
0: Were they anyone's fault?
1: I think power only lies in responsibility, which often we call blame. Mm -hmm. So when you point your finger at whose fault you think it is, you've assigned the power. Exactly. (laughs) So for me specifically, um, and I'll give you an example. Uh, Years and years and years ago, I, I was violently robbed in New York. Four guys, a gun, got beat up, got all my stuff taken. Clearly not my fault, but I had to, you know, to do, to do the work, to, to especially to, to address the PTSD that came with that, that experience, mm-hmm. I had to ask, wh- what was my responsibility? Where was my power? You know, in my choice of taking a route in a city that I wasn't familiar with, it was two in the morning, I'm talking on the phone, I'm carrying shopping bags. <laughs> I'm, I'm in an isolated area, I see a group of guys, I see them walk away, I see them stop, I see them turn around, I see them look at me. These are all things that I see happening and I'm blissfully ignorant to it because I'm just like, this, there's no way this is happening. And, just, and again, it's not about blaming myself more so than trying to recognize where the, the reason these things continually play in our minds is so we can incorporate them. You know, I I, I like I believe in the word incorporate more than healing, Uh, incorporate the learning that comes from these experiences. Trauma is when naive, you know, us being naive to something meets malevolence or or bad shit. And, um, you know, that creates that makes us cynical. And I think for me, revisiting it over and over and over again, thinking where was my power? Where 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 was this my responsibility? Not all of it, but even if I was one percent my responsibility, that's where I'm going to find my power. And I think in all of these situations, that's the case. And I think especially when we're talking about people, you know, dealing with injuries, dealing with uh, being scarred, dealing with something that totally came out of left field. um, Sometimes it may simply be like going back. There was very little I could have done. But moving forward, where is my power? Um, There's very little we can do to speed up healing. There's an infinite amount of things we can do to slow down healing. And, um, sometimes we, we make choices to slow down the healing. And, um, you know, a friend of mine, uh, is, just had a, a big hernia surgery and he just every morning he goes, I am happy. I am healing. I am getting healthier. Just saying those words w- would probably be more beneficial than being like, ah, oh, oh, this sucks. When will this be over? You know, he's not specifically saying there's magical powers in the words, but I think he understands that he's nudging himself in a better direction. By simply having that attitude, because your attitude, your attitude and your
0: efforts are always, always, always in your control. So always it, focus on that. It's more important than than you might think. So many people have been trained by their doctors or pharmaceutical advertising or some say, I suffer from psoriasis. You know, I suffer from whatever. Like you could just have it, or better yet, your body is experiencing that right now. And that's yeah. the reality. But if you tell yourself you suffer or I'm struggling with, how about stop struggling and just have the thing because struggling and suffering are choices and you might be doing them unconsciously and you might not have chosen to do them, but you don't have to do them. And I feel like a lot of this conversation around self-love, it, it revolves around ego, which is what's making you suffer and struggle. And I don't know for sure how to, in one sentence, tell someone, you know, you can stop doing that. I know how to do it relatively quickly if we can show someone what their brain is doing. But you can also feel what your heart's doing if you're just paying attention. But so many people haven't learned to pay attention to their heart. And I'll raise my hand as the first until I was 30. I didn't think there was any useful signal from below the neck, but Mm. it, it turns out there might be something useful in all that noise how would you help people who are working on that self-love, which allows them to better love others? How do they connect to their hearts better?
1: I mean, my, my favorite definition of, of meditation is doing nothing, you know, sit and do absolutely nothing. Um, to take out the question of, am I doing this right? Cause I think that's the, the, the general question when people meditate, am I doing this right? Um, take the instructions out of it. So there isn't a doing it right. You can't do nothing right or wrong. Um, and allowing yourself to kind of clear out a lot of the blockages that we have. And I mean, and that's going to take some time. Um, I I love the languaging that you, you talked about, you know, I'm suffering or I'm, I'm dealing with the truth is you're experiencing, I'm experiencing, you know, a toothache, I'm experiencing anxiety, I'm experiencing stress, I'm experiencing cancer. Um, and I'm not here to minimize any of those experiences. Um, but the, the, the stories we tell ourselves are the thoughts we have, and that paints the life that we that we, that we live. And, you know, I you know, I, I had I'd done a music video where I had, you know, the theme of the music video was, was gangs. And one of the gangs I, I had put together, it was based off The Warriors. It's was a 70s film, The Warriors. And, you know, I, I kind of flipped the script. And so one of the gangs were called The Thrivers, and it was oh. all cancer survivors. So it was women showing off their scars, you know, the mastectomy scars or what have you. And one of the women was telling me, she goes, I didn't know how beautiful a puddle was until I got cancer. Mm. And I'm like, the story you're telling yourself will definitely impact your your level of healing and how you feel on a day to day basis. Because she's not, there's not a victim mentality there. She goes, It took cancer to make me see the beauty in a puddle. Because many of us who may not be experiencing cancer right now are not looking up. Or looking down and seeing the beauty in the world that we have. Um, and I think that is that is really important. Um, a lot of the mental health issues we have are not the feelings that we experience. It's, it's the suppression of the feelings. Uh, anxiety is not your enemy. Anxiety is, is a warning system. Suppressing the anxiety is what's going to create the mental health issues. Pay, pay attention. You know, sit, do nothing, feel Feel anxious, feel the dopamine withdrawal, feel the discomfort, feel it, allow it, you know, that's, what's going to allow you to be deeper connected with yourself. I think the the reason we avoid connecting with ourselves is because a lot of the things that we're going to feel are not going to be pleasure. And we associate pleasure with happiness when oftentimes pleasure is just medication for a lack of peace. You know, it's, you know, it's not having everything, um, it's not needing anything. And I think that's the important part. And it's, and I don't want to, I don't know, I think it's Carl Jung, and Jordan Peterson's always saying it, but to go from a bad place to a better place, you have to go through a worse place. And the the, the process of connecting with yourself will involve you going through that worse place. It'll, it, it will involve that shadow work, whether you realize the shadow work or not. And again, it, it does not come from doing anything specifically. It comes from not doing. It comes from just, allowing what's already existing to be observed and experienced and giving it its time because you are not happy. You are not sad. You are not angry. You're experiencing these things. And we all have enough empirical data to prove that they all pass. Nobody is unhappy forever. Nobody is happy forever. Nobody's angry forever. Allowing these emotions to pass Uh, And experiencing them as they are and allowing them to exist as they are, I think is a really good way to start that connecting with yourself Um, and and viewing it with an eye of curiosity instead of judgment. You know, the vast majority of emotions on the emotion wheel would be framed as negative, but those are what's necessary for survival, you
0: know. And if you don't allow yourself to be curious and to feel them, then you repress them, and then they pop up in all sorts of other painful ways. Versus, if they will just pass if you can have the courage to just sit and you know really look into it. But you know, for a lot of times, um, that's a just one of those things like public speaking, where most people are not going to really fully feel a negative emotion because it's just too scary. Which is why it's a negative emotion. So we get caught in that in that cycle and. I do feel like the some of the the psychedelic experiences you talked about, or even just dancing, people let go of that. I, I have an old friend from business school. His brother uh, was barely able to walk and had a really serious uh, car injury, car accident injury, and he said, "You know, I just found this group and I, I started dancing, and, and I would dance until dawn, like every night, every time I got a chance." And he literally danced himself back, and he said, "Without that, he didn't think he would even walk." Why do you think that loving yourself and knowing yourself automatically makes you more loving towards others?
1: I think when when the internal question of what, what can you do for me turns into what can I do for you, mm. you know, I you know, I'm, I'm 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 in Los Angeles right now, a city where everybody wants to make it, and they're inaccurately looking at each other as what can you do for me? Not understanding that the most successful, profitable, greedy businesses in the world are only able to do so by creating some level of value for a consumer. And it has, the question has to be, what can I do for you? Um, And if your cup is full, then you're only asking that, you know? And, and, and I mean, even if we take love out of the equation, you know, that could be a retired tech, bro who's exited and now he's just spending his time middlemanning for everybody else. You know, it's that, you know, that idea, what can I do for you? Because his cup is full in some capacity. Um, mm-hmm. I think from that, that way. And, and, and there's a story in the book about a former NFL player, Marquise, um, not during a Wim Hof ice uh, uh, session in Utah, not getting into the ice you know saying that i'm good not not going into the ice today and his his confidence of him not needing to prove to people that he could do it or not caring if people were trying to encourage him to do it or thinking he was afraid and then when everybody went inside another person was afraid to do it and then he got in the ice with them so oh, that's cool. you know, his, his only motivation his mo- he had no motivation to prove to anybody he could do it um but then when somebody needed help that was motivation for him to get in um that level of confidence, that level of self-love, I think is a great example of the, the, his only motivating factor is to serve others because he's he's got it going on really well for himself. Um, and I think, yeah, when your cup's full and you're only focused on where can I where can I spill this
0: overflow? I, I've got a really hard question for you. And it's something I'm working on for probably the book after the book after the next one. And oh I love that. I love I love how, how you have it planned out. <laughs> you know, they, they just come to me. And that book is going to be about narcissism. The how can I help you? The more you're built into that, we know six percent of people maybe are sociopaths. And they love how can I help you and others. And I'm thinking it's an increasing percentage but at least 30, maybe 40% of people have some meaningful degree of narcissist tendencies, which means that that they're actively seeking people who will help them, but not out of, uh, they're not doing it because they're looking for like a win-win situation. They're looking to take advantage, whether they're consciousness of it or they don't. How do we go about doing that? How can I help you in keeping that vibe? knowing that there are people whose intent is to steal.
1: I I, I look at it from, I remember asking a friend who went out of his way to, to, to to put me in front of a lot of people and connect me and, and and, and things are going for him very well. And anytime he ever, ever, ever reached out to me for anything, it was always for somebody Mm -hmm. else. He'd be like, Hey humble. Nice. Can I ask you for a favor? And I'll be like, sure. I'm going to connect you with so-and-so they, they, they want, you to be on their podcast, or I'm going to connect you with so-and-so. They need help doing X, Y, Z. And then I was like, wow, like, he's he's never asked for anything himself. And I remember asking him, aren't you ever, like, concerned with, like, who you help? Like, do you have, like, a filtering system for who you say yes to? And he's like, God doesn't care who I help. God just cares that I help. And he goes, what's the worst case? Someone, someone, someone takes advantage of it, and I stop helping them. And I was like, that was, you know, very, very succinct. And I, I think like um, we, require these op- we, we require these experiences of malevolence. We, we, we need them. And these uh, individuals, I've, as I said, I've had individuals steal from me, use me. I've had individuals that have inflicted harm on me and violence on me. Um, all of these have just unlocked my potential to be a more uh, courageous individual You know, when bad things happen to us, um, we become cynical. Um, and then we think bad, you know, and we get, we get really simple and we're like, Oh, bad things will always happen. And then once we spend some time integrating learning and healing, you know, we can be courageous, which is, I will deal with you knowing that there are possibilities for things to go wrong. And, um, and that's a never-ending journey, you know. I remember being screwed over in business, and being like, "Oh crap, you need a contract." And I remember having a contract and still getting screwed over, and be like, "Oh crap," you know. Like, you know, you, you learn from these experiences, and um, courage is the antidote for this. Which is, you know, and because if everybody, you know, if we didn't live in a world where people weren't getting shot in the back, then you know, where where would the resilience come from? Um, so I do feel you know, the, the diversity of uh mental makeups, as unfortunate as it can be at some point, uh, is extremely important. And I mean, shoot, going back to going back to Hitler, you know, you can you can trace the amount of technological advances that came from World War II. Um, and that and go even further into the Cold War, it's the only reason you and I can have a conversation from two different parts of the world and, and everybody can hear it you know, almost instantly. Um, so, you know, instead I, of judging things, we can be curious about it.
0: What you tapped into there is is a, a core part of the reset process um, that I use when I'm teaching people at 40 Years of Zen. And it's that you have to find something to be grateful for. If you were traumatized by World War II and you want to get out of the trauma, find one good thing. Okay, Radar. There we go. Radar's useful, right? So th- there you go. And it doesn't have to be... It doesn't have to be a good thing that's equal in value to all the harm that was caused. It just has to be one little tiny good thing, which is like a little spark that then allows you to do whatever awareness and loving and and all the other parts of of deep and authentic healing. Uh, So I I love it the way you just brought that up. What was the good thing from World War II? A lot of bad stuff, but you can't put it all in black and white same thing with every supplement or even you know glyphosate that stuff is destroying our soil and our planet right now and it's making a lot of people sick it did free some people from weeding a long time ago which was backbreaking so there you go now we can forgive that we can stop using it but bottom line is nothing is all black evil there's always one little tiny good thing and and vice versa even the very best people have their flaws right
1: yeah the the invention the invention of the ship was also the invention of the shipwreck Oh, you know, there
0: you
1: go. You know, it's this. This is the thing, and and, and also, I want to. I, I do want to put it out there. This this kind of concept of you know the light versus dark. You know, scientifically, black is absorbing all the colors, and white repels. So, black is the everything. You know, I, I think we can. We, we, we need to change the narrative of black always representing negativity when black actually is the everything. You know, white white's the repelling. And uh, everything's bouncing off the white. So, um, so white, for me, white,
0: white light isn't repelling, but white surfaces are absolutely repelling.
1: Repelling. Well, black is absorbing. Yep. You know, it's absorb, it's, it's allowing everything in um, where we view, yeah, we, we view black as the void where it's more so it's absorbing everything. So, um, and again, this is just important from, um, you know, growing up where you're like, the good guys are always light and the bad guys are always dark. Think lanking. We have two brothers and they have two very different hair colors and the, the bad guy is always living in the darkness and he has dark hyenas. and, and the subtle there's subtleties to it. Um, and from a pragmatic standpoint, it doesn't serve it, does, it, it doesn't serve as well as we think. And even as a school teacher when we were teaching kids, you know it was less about don't talk to strangers. it was also about even if your aunt and uncle invite you into the car, don't go. Because that's where the majority of the the kidnappings happen. It's not strangers kidnapping kids. It's people they know. Um, So, you know, redefining these narratives, I think, are important to an extent. Um, But also just going back, like we make a lot of big life decisions when we're 12 and our brains can only think in duality, black and white. Um, And our brains are much more complex, you know, once they're fully developed past twenty six. And we just don't upgrade the software to realize that there can be good and there can be bad in every situation. Um, And that's, you know, that's therapy. Therapy is just getting you out of black and white thinking and just seeing
0: all the gray that can exist in between. Very, very well said. Uh, I feel like we could we could chat for hours about this stuff because there's there's so much important wisdom here uh, that no one taught me that stuff. I didn't do any personal development until I was about 30. And I've already had this incredibly successful tech career. I've made and lost six million dollars and I'm miserable. <laughs> and then, you know, eventually just having nothing to lose. I'm like, I'll do all this crazy person stuff. And, you know, eventually you realize that there's maybe not some crazy in there. Or there is some crazy in there, but maybe there's some some useful stuff. And and for me, the the most important learning of all of that was that. Emotions are not thoughts, they don't have to have a reason. And, and that goes for love and it goes for fear as well. And, and just understanding there doesn't have to be a reason for love, you can just feel it. And there does not have to be a reason for fear, you can just feel it. For me, that was really amazing because I'd convinced myself if there's no reason to be feeling fear, then I'm not afraid even if I was. And if there's no reason to be feeling love, then I'm not feeling love even if I was, right? So the brain can get in the way of emotions. And what I think you've done well in in a very artful sort of mental hacker way spiritual hacker way in your book you know how to be loved or how to be loved however you want to read it as a title you've when someone reads the book you're getting that combination of rational and irrational emotional so that people can more easily recognize the love that's already in there And, and that's just hard to do man so kudos as a fellow author who doesn't write your kind of book but I don't think I could write that kind of book. So congrats.
1: No, th- thank you so much. It was, I mean, this was my this was my, my life jacket during the pandemic. It was the timing worked out perfectly where I've told myself, okay, I like to travel. I was like, you're traveling too much. You're relying on this McDonald's breakfast too much where we need to sit in one place and we need to get to work. And then that was my uh, intention for the year 2020. And then in January and February, I completely broke that intention. And then... It almost felt like the universe or or just circumstances were like okay well we'll just stop everything and then uh just uh it was actually my lawyer that said listen be extremely productive during this time and make something happen and not realizing that not only doing the work was keeping me afloat during some of the most isolating challenging times but also getting something done for when things uh, eventually open back up was was an amazing setting and i mean all of our intentions for almost everything we do revolve around love, whether we know it or not. And, um, so for me, this was a, both a labor of love, a labor to love, um, and, uh, something I'm extremely proud of. And I, and I appreciate you uh, sharing your platform, your
0: space, and your audience with me to have this conversation. Um, thanks humble and listeners HumbleThePoet.com is where you can go to find out more about, this unusual and remarkable human being, and maybe learn a thing or two about love, which is kind of useful these days, wouldn't you say? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Completely. You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey.
2: The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey.